Well, before we consider this psalm together, let's come before God and ask for his help as we do. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we remember the response of the disciple Peter when Jesus gave a hard teaching saying that he was the bread from heaven and that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will be raised up on the last day. Many people responded to that teaching with unbelief and left. And Jesus looked to the disciples and he asked them, Will you also leave me? But Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear words of eternal life this day. And that you would write your word upon our hearts. So that we may be men and women who bear out the description of the righteous man, the righteous woman, in Psalm 112. Give us the fear of the Lord. Give us delight for your commandments. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that there's a very close relationship between Psalm 111, Psalm 112. The two psalms very clearly go together. And if you're just looking at it from a literary perspective, uh, if you read it in Hebrew, you would notice that both of these psalms are what's called an acrostic. So every line of the psalm begins with a, a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes right through from A to Z. And if you look at Psalm 111, Psalm 112, side by side, you'll notice they're the exact same length. They're identical poems. And we saw last week that Psalm 111 is a psalm that celebrates God, points to his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his faithfulness. That's Psalm 111. If you look at Psalm 112, there's a lot of the same language used. You can compare the two. There's many parallel phrases and words that are used. But Psalm 111 is about the righteous man. And if you read them side by side, you'll see that everything that Psalm 111 says about God is said about the righteous man in Psalm 112. So what you have is God in Psalm 111 and the image of God, the reflection of God in Psalm 112. So Psalm 112 gives us a portrait of the righteous man, just as Psalm 111 gave us a portrait of God. And both Psalms begin with hallelujah. That's a Hebrew word, hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. Both the description of God in Psalm 111 is a cause for praise, but so is the description of the righteous man in Psalm 112. Our lives as Christians ought to be for the glory of God. They ought to elicit praise to God. Our lives need to radiate with hallelujah, with praise the Lord. And I've mentioned that there's a close relationship between the five books of Moses and the five books of the Psalms. They're divided up into five books. So just as you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so you have Psalms, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. So there's a very close relationship between God's law and this hymnal, this book of praise and prayer that we have in the Psalms. And the reason for that is because God is more concerned with the worshiper than he is with the content, the words that, he, that the worshiper uses. So we can be like the kind of people that Isaiah complained about, God through Isaiah complained about, people that draw near to God with the words of their mouth, with their lips, yet their hearts are far from him. And the Psalms are more concerned about the actual worshiper. What does that person look like? And Psalm 112 paints a portrait for us of the kind of worshiper that God is looking for. So the Psalms, prayer and praise, worship, always goes hand in hand with God's commandments, with God's law. And God is looking for worshipers who are obedient, whose lives reflect his own righteousness 
his own mercy and grace. And that's why we have in Psalm 111 the description of a person who reflects God in Psalm 100. Or sorry, in Psalm 112, we have a picture of a, a person who reflects God in Psalm 111. And if we look at Psalm 112, we'll see there three aspects. There's really three sections to the psalm. The first, and this is probably the most important in verses 1 and 2, God promises a blessing for those who fear him and delight in his commandments. And we need to pause and reflect on that. What does it mean to fear him and delight on his commandments? Secondly, verses 3 to 5, and then in verse 9, we learn that God's blessing is not an end in itself. He blesses us for a purpose. Those who fear God, those who delight in his commandments are blessed, but that blessing actually serves a purpose. There's a reason he blesses us, and we see that in those verses, and it's simple. It makes us generous. Generosity is the reason for God's blessing. And then in verses 6 to 10, we read that those who fear God and delight in his commandments are steadfast in heart. They're immovable. They're immovable. So we need to consider these three aspects of the psalm. First, verses 1 and 2, this promise to those who fear him and delight him. Second, this call to generosity. The righteous man is described as generous. And then thirdly, the fact that those who fear God don't fear anyone else. Don't fear anything else. I think Oswald Chambers once said, This is what we need to learn about the fear of God. Those who fear God don't fear anything else. Those who don't fear God fear everything else. And those who fear God are immovable. They're steadfast in heart. They don't fear anything else. That's the third aspect of the psalm. But first, note the promise of blessing. God promises a blessing on those who fear him and delight in his commandments. And the psalm actually gives us a list of all of these blessings. The promise is that they will have mighty offspring. There will be wealth and riches in their house. They will have a righteousness that endures forever. They will be a light in the midst of darkness. They will have security and confidence in the midst of sorrow and suffering. They will see victory over their enemies. They will be exalted. Their horns will be lifted up. They will be exalted and honored. These are the promises that are bestowed on those who fear the Lord and delight in his commandments. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? And we, had a, we spent a bit of time on this last week, and I think I define the fear of the Lord as a reverent, obedient adoration. And Psalm 2, verse 11, really captures this. In a nutshell, what is the fear of the Lord? Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And I think that combination, rejoicing with, trem- and with trembling, is very important. And we see that same combination in this psalm. Fear the Lord and delight in his commandments. And the two always go together. The fear and the delight. This means that we keep God's commandments, we respond to God's commandments with a spirit that is delighted, with a cheerful spirit, with a glad spirit. We read the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, Josh told us last week about the way that that catechism is organized, where we have a a statement first uh, about God and his comfort, our condition as sinful human beings, our deliverance, redemption in Christ, and then the major final section is gratitude. And what we have in that section on gratitude is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So we obey the Ten Commandments out of gratitude, Gratitude, that's what characterizes the righteous person. We delight in the commandments. We're not like the proverbial teenager who, when he's asked to clean his room, you know, oh, do I have to, and, you know, putting it off. That's not our attitude to our Heavenly Father. When our Heavenly Father asks us to do something, we don't say, oh, I don't know, do I have to? No, we say, yes, I get to do that. There's a spirit of delight, a spirit of excitement. We do it cheerfully. We do it gladly. Yes, we get to do that. It's not a spirit of obligation, but there's an attitude of aspiration. Yes, we get to do this. We read God's commandments and we think, all right, we get to do this. And that's the delight that we have. Now the question, I think, needs to be asked, however, where does this this fear of the Lord and this delight in his commandments come from? Is this something that we just can kind of conjure up in ourselves? 
I'm just going to try really hard. If I concentrate and I read the Bible and I try really hard, I'll be able to conjure up the fear of the Lord. I'll be able to conjure up this delight in his commandments. I don't think so. If we read through Scripture, we'll find a very different account of human beings. We've even been singing that, recognizing that in our songs, the total depravity, sinfulness of human beings. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or there's a great proverb, Proverb 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that seems good. You know, I've thought about it. Yeah, this is a good way to go. I'm going this way. There's a a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems good. There's a way that seems right. And yeah, I'm going to go down that path. The Bible says that path leads to death. So our hearts are naturally, desperately sick, deceitful above all things. We don't trust our heart. It may seem good to us, but that way actually leads to death. In fact, even our good deeds, even our own righteous deeds, and you'll hear this from a lot of people. They'll say, well, you know, I'm not a bad person. I do good things. I'm not such a bad person. The Bible even says about our righteous deeds, our good deeds. Isaiah 64, 6. God says that all of your righteous deeds are like unclean rags. Even our righteous deeds before God are filthy. Even what seems good to us, what seems clean and pure to us, before God, this is filthy. These are filthy rags. So as we approach this gospel and we think about this description of the man in, in Psalm 112, it's nothing but, a, but a, a psalm of condemnation if we don't read it in the light of the gospel. And the only way we delight in God's commandments is if we see them in the light of the gospel. And so we need to hear the gospel before we go any further in this psalm. Because if we read the psalm outside of the gospel, we'll only read it as a sentence of condemnation on us because we're not the person described in this psalm. So we need to hear the gospel God's word, his prophetic word, is that we have hearts that are deceitful, that are desperately sick. Whatever seems good to us actually leads to death. What seems clean and pure to us is actually filthy. But listen to what the gospel says to us. Paul, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the gospel to us, and we've been singing it this morning. The fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that Christ has taken our filthy rags, he's clothed himself in those rags, he died our death in our place, he served the sentence of condemnation, he served the penalty for our sin, he went to the grave and he buried our sin, he buried our condemnation, he buried our filthy rags in the grave, and on the third day, he, raised, he was raised victorious. And, he, and, and the risen Lord comes to us and says, Here, take my garments of righteousness. Take my resurrection life. The sentence of condemnation has passed over you. It was laid on me. I've taken your filthy rags. I've buried them in that tomb. Now come with me. Be clothed in my righteousness. Be clothed in my life. And Paul even says, When we become a Christian, when we turn to Jesus in faith and we're clothed in his righteousness, he says we're reborn. We're born again. He says we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is clothed in Christ and his righteousness, he is a new creation. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings about this new creation, brings about this new birth. And being a new creation, having this new birth, means having a new heart. The same prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 who said that the human heart is deceitful and is desperately sick also said this. Listen to God's promise through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 32 verses 37 to 41. Behold, I will gather them, that is my people, from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And here we have the great statement of covenant, verse 38. And they shall be my people, 
and I will be their God. Now listen to what he says. I will give them one heart and one way, not a way that seems good and leads to death, according to the inclination of our own hearts. No, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. A new heart that will fear God. Precisely what this psalm says about the righteous man. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. The blessing for successive generations. Just as this psalm has a blessing for the next generation. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that will not turn away And I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, and they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What God says is, I will give you a new heart, and I will put the fear of me in your heart. And I will delight in you. I will rejoice in you. I will do good to you. I will love you with all my heart and all my soul. And the reason that we turn to God and we can fear God is because he's put the fear of himself in us. And the reason that we delight in his word is because he himself delights in us. Our rejoicing, our delight in his word is a response to his rejoicing, his delight in us. Our love for him is a response to his love for us. We love him with all of our heart and our soul because he first loved us with all of his heart and his soul. Our delight is our response to his delight. And they're his commandments. They're not just any commandments. They're his commandments. The one who puts fear in our hearts, the one who gives us new hearts, filled with delight for his commandments. So this is the light of the gospel, and we need to see Psalm 112 in that light. If we're to delight in what it says, we need to see it in the light of the gospel. So we don't respond to God's commandments begrudgingly with a sense of obligation. No, we delight in his commandments. We aspire, we want to be like the kind of people described in this psalm. And there are really two descriptions that we get two main descriptions of the righteous person in this psalm. First, the righteous man, the righteous woman who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments is generous. And we see that verses 3 to 5 and verse 9. Generosity. That characterizes those who fear God and delight in his commands. And the second characteristic is the fact that they are immovable. They don't fear bad news. Their hearts are steadfast. Their hearts are steady. They're established. So we need to consider these two Aspects of the portrait of the righteous man. Generosity on the one hand, immovability, a steadfast heart that doesn't fear on the other. So first, generosity. We're told here that wealth and riches are in his house. He deals generously and lends. He distributes freely and has given to the poor. There's a description of the righteous man here. He's generous. He's given wealth and riches. Now, we need to be careful because we live in a very consumeristic, materialistic society. And immediately, I think, most of us, when we think, okay, wealth and riches, immediately we, we, we tend to think stuff. We tend to think, okay, fancy cars, a big house, swimming pool, all of this stuff. Wealth and riches, we, that to us, means stuff, status symbols. If someone's wealthy and rich, they've got this stuff. And that's how we identify the wealthy and the rich by the kinds of cars they drive, by, the, by their watches, their suits, their houses, etc. Sign of success. That's not the case. That's not what the Bible has in view when it, has, when it points to the, the wealthy or the rich. And God promises the righteous man wealth and riches. So we needed to consider, well, what, what is meant there? Is it simply a reference to millionaires, in which case this doesn't really apply to me after all? I don't think it applies to most of us here. No, that's not the case. First of all, if I can quote uh, a bank, because we're talking about money, Scotiabank, you're richer than you think, right? That's their slogan. First of all, recognize that. You're richer than you think. And when we think of God's blessing and his wealth, it's not just stuff. It's not just status symbols. When I was growing up, my parents didn't have very much money, and I remember that on the odd weekend on a Friday evening, my dad, we lived outside of town. He would go into town, and he would rent a VCR, 
in a couple of movies. We didn't even have a VCR, but he would rent a VCR in a couple of movies and then come back and like, oh, dad's here. We sit down and watch a movie, and that was a really big deal for us. Dad rented a VCR. We're going to watch a couple of movies. But that, that, I experienced that as God's blessing. This is a sign of God's blessing. And I remember as a boy, we'd go, I have uh, three siblings, so there were six of us, and we would all pile into a car and we would drive to the States, visiting friends in Texas one summer. Uh, someone very generously gave us use of their condo in Florida one summer. I remember another summer going out to the East Coast, and we all piled into the car. And along the way, we would always stop at a motel, and usually all six of us would cram into one room which meant my brother and I had to sleep on the floor, and we had these little roll-up mats. And I remember my brother was, was always, you know, was a bit thicker and a bit softer, and I always complained, you know, his roll is better. And my dad said, no, actually, yours is better. I think it was actually more expensive, but it wasn't as comfortable. And as far as I was concerned, though, that's fine. I didn't really care. I was sleeping on the floor. If the, the motel had a swimming pool, great. Like, this is God's blessing. I get to swim in a pool. And every once in a while, we'd get a double room, so my sisters would be in one room, and I would get my own bed with my brother. I just thought, bonus, you know, this is luxury. I get to sleep in a bed tonight. But as far as I was concerned, my family was blessed. My family had wealth. These were good gifts, these vacations, watching a movie on a VCR. These were God's gifts. So let's not just limit this view of wealth and riches to status symbols, to having a pool or whatever else. That's not the case. However, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, this is talking about quite frankly, money. This is talking about wealth in that sense. And in the ancient world, in the biblical view, wealth meant resources. It meant land and property. And it did mean money. And God says that he will give the righteous wealth in that sense, resources. And the reason that God gives resources to the righteous is because of how they're characterized. They are gracious, they're merciful, compassionate, and just. And God blesses resources, blesses people, such people with resources. However, he does so for a purpose. There's a reason that he blesses us with resources, and that's so that we use them for his purposes. So it's not the case that we acquire all this stuff and it's ours to use as we want. The Bible is very clear that everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we don't really have ultimate claim to anything that we own. Even though we work hard and get a paycheck, ultimately this is all God's provision, and he's called us to use it for his purposes. Now look, if, if you compare verse 3 and verse 9. Notice the connection between these two verses. First in verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. And then in verse 9, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. And his righteousness endures forever. Both verses say his righteousness endures forever. And this links the two verses. This connects the two verses. Which means we read the two verses together in light of each other. Which means the wealth and riches are given for a purpose. That they might be distributed freely and given to the poor. This is why God blesses the righteous person. Because the righteous person is gracious and merciful. The righteous person will see the needs of another person. They'll be moved with compassion. They'll be moved with mercy. And they'll use those resources to meet the needs of the other person. To bless the other person. But the righteous person is also righteous, after all. He's just. She's just. So it's not the case that such a person is just willy-nilly throwing around their money. Kind of giving with reckless abandon. No. There's a certain righteousness or justice which guides their giving. If you look at verse 5, it says he conducts his affairs with justice. And the word justice has the idea of sound judgment or discretion. He conducts his affairs with sound judgment, with prudence, with discretion. He wisely manages the resources. He's gracious, he's merciful, he distributes freely, but he does so wisely. He does so in a righteous way. Righteousness means according to God's word, according to God's standards. So God's word, God's law, guides our giving. And we use discretion, we use sober judgment. There's a verse in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now it doesn't say if anyone is out of work, let him not eat. It says if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
Now, let's say someone comes to you and they're out of work, they're unemployed, and they need your help. And they ask you for a loan or for a gift or support of some, some sort. How do you know whether or not he is person A, just happens to be out of work, or person B is unwilling to work? So you see, we need discretion. We need sound judgment. God calls us to evaluate, to use our funds wisely. Don't give it to a person who's unwilling to work. The Bible is very clear. Paul says that. However, give freely to the person who happens to be out of work and needs your help. So discretion discerns the difference between the two. Now you notice that the, the chapter, the psalm, identifies two kinds of giving. In verse 5, lending. The righteous person lends money. In verse 9, the righteous, per, righteous person gives. So you have both lending on the one hand and giving on the other hand. There's two kinds of generosity at work here. And it's not the case that if you lend, you're somehow less generous than if you just give. So it's not, oh, you know, I kind of I want to help you, but if I can get it back somehow, that's great. No, that's not the case. There's actually real wisdom in lending. If you lend money to someone in need, first of all, you are, uh, there's a certain dignity in that, a certain honor in that. You're not making the person an object of your charity. If the person is willing to work, for example, it's good to lend rather than give. It promotes honesty and integrity on the, on the borrower. It promotes industry. The person no, no, wants to now get to work so they can repay the loan. And it means that once the loan is repaid, it can be given out again. So there's wisdom to lending. And the, and the Bible uh, calls on us to lend. There's a good verse for that. Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 37. This is God's law on lending. He says this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. We never profit from the needs of another person. Never take interest, never loan at interest to a person in need. But fear your God. Notice fear of the Lord here. That your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. So here's the the biblical law on lending. But there's also a biblical law on just simply giving. Deuteronomy 15, 7-8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now notice in God's law here, in both Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 18, notice how personal it is. Soften your heart. Open your hand. Invite the person to come and live with you. On the one hand, lending creates that kind of personal connection, that personal accountability. It forges a relationship. And actually, the word in the Hebrew for lend is a word that could also be translated to join together. And when you lend someone, lend to someone, you're, you're being joined to that person. It forges a bond. And it creates a relationship where there can be encouragement, accountability, prayer, support. On the other hand, the Bible says that there are times when we just need to lend freely. Have a soft heart, an open hand. And Jesus says, when you give to someone in need, don't expect anything in return. So there are times for lending, but there's also times just for freely giving. And if you look through the history of the church, there's all kinds of examples of famous Christians who have freely lent, freely given their money. Now, the church is prone to to fads, to fadism. Kind of the latest thing. We're doing this now. We're doing that now. And you can usually chart this by whatever kind of adjective people are putting in front of their church. So, you know, now we're a missional church now, or whatever the latest adjective is. And we're this, we're that, we're that. So the church is always kind of prone to fadism. And in the fourth century, believe it or not, the, the kind of fad of the time was giving away all of your money. And this was the rise of monasticism. And part of this was encouraged, this was partly encouraged by a very famous bishop in an Egyptian city named Alexandria. His name was Athanasius. And he wrote a biography of Antony the monk. It's called The Life of Antony. And believe it or not, this was an international bestseller. If you went into the airport in Cairo, 
That would be right on the shelves there, cheap paperback. Take it with you on the plane and read it. And actually, Augustine himself came across a copy of this book, and it was, it was, it was that, he was reading that book when he was converted to Christianity. It had already been translated into Latin. So the life of Antony. And the, the life of Antony tells the story of, of a wealthy man in Egypt who one day went into church, and the gospel reading that day was the account of Jesus with the rich young man. And Jesus said to the young man, sell all of your possessions to the poor and follow me. And Antony heard that and went out and did it. He sold all of his possessions to the poor, and he went out into the wilderness to lead the life of a monk. And all kinds of people in the 4th century started to do this, selling all of their possessions and going out into the wilderness. Now, some people may be called to do that. That's fine. And I'm not going to weigh in here on monasticism and its, its uh, positives and its negatives. I've read a lot of the writings of the monks, especially in the early church, and some of it's very beneficial. However, this was taken to an extreme. And people who were really Christians were people who gave all of their money away and went out to the desert to live by themselves, renouncing possessions, renouncing family, everything. However, there were some people in the church at the time who were seen as less spiritual, who didn't sell all of their possessions. They kept their land holdings. In the ancient world, to be rich was to have land. They kept their land. They made an income year by year, and they gave, they tithed. They gave their resources to the church. And over the course of their lifetime, they gave a lot more to the church than those who in one time gave everything and left. And these people, who were seen as less spiritual, but were consistently, faithfully tithing their income, their resources, had a huge impact on the ministry of the church, the mission of the church. There were whole hospitals and schools built with the money from the tithe of wealthy people in the church who were just, who used their money wisely. They were gracious and compassionate and generous. They didn't sell it all. They kept it, and they used it for God's purposes. There's another example that we have from the 18th century. Now, some of you will have heard of William Wilberforce. And he was part of a group of evangelical Anglicans who lived in London. They became known as the Clapham Circle. They lived in an area of London called Clapham. And Wilberforce is famous because he was the guy that really championed the abolition of the slave trade in England. And eventually, before, right before he died, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And it didn't look like he was going to be such a man at first. He was sort of a nominal Christian. And he and his best friend, William Pitt, were basically the two most popular guys in all of London. They were out every night partying and all of the... If you were to throw a, par, a party in London, kind of high society... You had to have William Wilberforce there and William Pitt. And if you did, all right, you know, here's the two Williams, and they're going to come and sing and tell jokes and drink. And they were the life of every party in high London society. But then something happened. Wilberforce went on a trip. He toured around Europe. And he went with a man who happened to be an evangelical Christian, one of these evangelicals. And evangelicals in the 18th century were seen as kind of fanatic, and they took everything too seriously. And, you know, let's just be proper Anglicans. But he went with such a man, and the gospel was preached to him. And he was born again, the same spiritual rebirth that we've been hearing about. That's what happened to Wilberforce. And in October 28, 1787, he wrote this in his diary. God has set before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. How's that for a personal mission statement? God has set before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, the reformation of manners is that's not a reference to you know, reforming uh, your table manners, you know, being polite, P's and Q's, and having the right forks and all that. No. Manners in the 18th century meant morals. So God has set before me the reformation of morality in English society. Now, he thought, how best can I do this? I think I'll go and, and be a pastor somewhere. But actually, William Pitt and John Newton, the famous hymn writer, counseled him otherwise. They said no. Uh, at the time, Wilberforce was, was on track to be a politician. He was already a member of parliament. He thought, I'm going to leave that behind and become a pastor. They said, no, stay in parliament. God's going to use you there. And if you want to carry out this, this mission statement, this object the abolition of the slave trade, the reformation of morality in society, you need to be in politics. 
At the time, I think he was 25 at the time, his friend William Pitt was 24, already the Prime Minister of England at the age of 24. So those of you in your early 20s, no pressure. Prime Minister at 24. So he stayed in politics, and he worked tirelessly in in Parliament to bring about the abolition of the slave trade and eventually the abolition of slavery. And that's, most of us know him for that. But the other half of his mission statement, the reformation of morality, had a huge impact on London, on English society. And there were all kinds of problems in the late 17th century in English society. It was rife with gambling, with poverty, with alcoholism. Believe it or not, people used to get paid in gin. You would get a little bit of money and you would get gin to drink. And and alcoholism was rife. Believe it or not, this is a stat. The average consumption of beer per capita in England was a gallon a day. People drank a gallon of beer a day on average, and that includes children. Alcoholism was a huge problem. So there's all kinds of uh, brothels left, right, and center. Prostitution. So Wilberforce and this group around him of evangelical Anglicans set about changing that, transforming society. And they did it because they had influence and they, they used their wealth. They were generous. And they started all kinds of charitable societies. Wilberforce himself founded, funded, and helped oversee over 60 charitable societies. Everything from improving the working conditions of chimney sweeps to the first humane society, the treatment of animals. Societies that covered every aspect of, uh, of London, of English society. And they brought about great change. Two of the other people in the Clapham Circle, uh, one of them, her name was Hannah Moore, who's a famous author. Hannah Moore and her sister started up schools, all kinds of schools, and they funded them. They paid for them. Wilberforce, at the end of his life, had almost spent all of his estate, millions, giving it to all of these organizations, tirelessly not only combating slavery and slave trade, but all manner of immorality in society. Now the question is, what is the church in Canada doing today? Are we like the early church, founding hospitals and schools? And Are we like the, the Clapham Circle? starting up all of these organizations that are, that are changing the tide of our culture, which is increasingly going away from Christ, which is increasingly immoral? I don't think we are at the moment. One of the reasons, quite frankly, is we're not as generous as these earlier generations. It's not for lack of funds that we're not doing these things. I think that's, I think that's fair to say. On the other hand, yes, Wilberforce is an exceptional case, and he was a very wealthy person. Again, this isn't isn't a calling just for the wealthy, and it doesn't mean that you have to have lots of money in your bank account for God to use you. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. In the first century, there was a famine in Jerusalem, and the church there uh, needed provisions. And Paul was, one of the things Paul was doing and going to all of the Gentile churches in Asia Minor and Europe was taking up a collection, taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And in a few of his letters, he refers to this collection that he's taking up. And when he writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them of the collection he's taking up for the church in Jerusalem. And he sets before them the example of the Macedonians. And the Macedonian church is not like the Clapham Circle. It's not like the wealthy people in the early church. Listen to what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is right near Greece. Think of where Greece is at today. Anyway. For in a severe test of affliction, notice what they're going through. They themselves are going through a test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Two things come together. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us. And notice the kind of ironic sense of begging. They're begging Paul to let him uh, so that they can give more. They're begging to give more begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
and this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Notice that. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. That's precisely what the Macedonian church is doing. And Paul doesn't say here they they wrote a check for a million dollars. It doesn't say the amount. It, it, It was likely a very small amount. But this is what Paul celebrates. And in God's economy, God's economy doesn't work like our economy. He accepts even the smallest gift from a generous, cheerful heart. Remember the widow's offering. Jesus says that that widow gave more than those who give millions. So this isn't a psalm for the, for the rich and famous. It's a, song for, a psalm for everyday believers like the Macedonian church. But we need to remember what Paul says a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 9. Each one of us must give as we've decided in our hearts. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's the converted heart that is generous and then gives. It's not the compelled or coerced heart. It's the converted heart which is generous and then gives. God loves a cheerful giver. And this is the first aspect of the righteous person. He or she is generous. The second aspect is the righteous man who fears the Lord and who delights in his commandments is immovable, fearless. Immovable and fearless. Now, he doesn't say that because the righteous man is blessed and there's wealth and riches in his house, he never has any worries. Notice that it says in verse 7 that the righteous person doesn't fear bad news. Now, it doesn't say the righteous man doesn't hear bad news. It says doesn't fear bad news. Meaning, you will hear bad news. And I think all of us can testify. I'm sure there are some of us right now, and if we look back over our lives, many times where we've heard bad news. But the righteous man doesn't fear bad news. And bad news can come in many forms. Maybe it means uh, the news that you've lost your job, the news that a loved one is sick or dying. Sometimes it comes in the form of gossip or slander. We learn that someone's been talking about us behind our backs. The righteous person doesn't fear, God, uh, fear bad news. And the reason is in the second half of that verse, because the righteous person trusts in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord, who fear the Lord, don't fear anything else. The righteous person doesn't fear bad news because he trusts in the Lord. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 5. He says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. This is what it means to trust in the Lord. We don't fear bad news, but we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And after we have suffered a little while, he will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us. And Peter himself could say this to the church because he himself had experienced this. He knew this. Remember that moment in the Gospels? I think it's only in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 14, when The disciples are out at sea and there's a great storm and they see Jesus walking to them across the sea and they think it's a a ghost and they're terrified and Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's Jesus walking to them through the storm and Peter says, command me to come and see you. Jesus says, come. Peter hops out of the boat and he runs out to greet his Lord But as he's walking on the water, he starts to look at the wind and the waves around him, and he starts to sink. But notice what Jesus does in that moment. He doesn't say, oh, okay, this is good for you, Peter. You didn't really trust me, and I'm just going to let you tread water for a bit. You know, just let you struggle. No, it says immediately. In the text, immediately Jesus reached out. Peter said, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed hold of him and lifted him up. Those who fear the Lord don't fear bad news because they know this. They cry out. They say, Lord, save me. And they know that the Lord immediately grabs a hold of us. He lifts us up. Peter knew this, and so he could say, cast your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. 
Nothing happens outside of God's providential care in our lives. There's nothing accidental. There's nothing by chance. And he's not watching over us at a distance. It's not the case that God is behind in, in some room somewhere with TV screens and he's just sort of monitoring what's going on. No. This morning I was preaching on Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that psalm says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He's close. It says his eyes are turned towards the righteous. His ears are turned towards the righteous. And this word of God's presence, the word of God's hearing, about God's hearing and listening, this is actually a statement about the Holy Spirit. And Paul knew this. Romans 5. Listen to what he says about the Holy Spirit. We're not afraid of bad news because God's Spirit is with us. And Paul says, verses 3 to 5, Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reason that the righteous man has a steadfast heart a firm heart. The reason the righteous man is immovable and doesn't fear bad news is because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the love of God planted in our hearts, is the same spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And our Heavenly Father cares for his children. He watches over his children. He listens to his children. He provides for his children. He delivers his children. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's one final point here. If you look at verse 9, we read there that the horn of the righteous man is exalted in honor. The horn is exalted in honor. Now, the horn in Scripture is usually a reference to power. Something like an ox has a horn. It's a very powerful animal. A rhinoceros has a horn a powerful animal. The horn refers to power, to influence. And we can think of that as our, as our reputation, our influence. And the psalmist promises that the, right, the, the reputation, the influence, the memory of the righteous man will be exalted in honor. That's the promise. The wicked man, on the other hand, will melt away like wax. His desires will perish. In the last two verses, we have a contrast between the righteous man and the wicked man. The wicked man will melt away. The horn of the righteous man will be exalted in honor. Now, we know from church history, we know from our own lives, we know from the state of the church in many countries today where it's persecuted, this doesn't appear to be the case. It doesn't appear to be the case that the righteous are exalted in honor and the wicked are melting away. But let me just hold up before you a a test case for this. And again, I go back to the first century. Let's compare two people and see if this psalm is true. Those two people are Paul and Nero. Two men in the first century. Paul and Nero. At the end of his life, Paul has been arrested. He's he's being taken to the Caesar under Roman guard. That's Nero. And he writes 2 Timothy while he's sitting in a hole in the ground, a Roman prison, awaiting execution. And Nero is sitting enthroned over the Roman Empire. Paul and Nero. And Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. When he was held uh, in trial there at his first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
This is what Paul says while he's sitting in a dark, damp hole in the ground in Rome while Nero is reigning over the Roman Empire. He looks forward to a day. He says, I will be crowned with righteousness. He knows that. And he says, even when everyone else deserted me and abandoned me, the Lord stood with me. The Lord strengthened me. Now the question is, was Paul's horn exalted in honor? He was executed by Nero. Was his horn exalted in honor? Well, let me ask you this question. How many people here are either named Paul or know someone named Paul or Pablo? Okay, most of us. Good. How many people here are named Nero or know someone named Nero? (laughs) Okay, one person. Still, I think we can say yes. The horn of Paul was exalted in honor. People today don't name their baby boys Nero. They do name him Paul. Paul was exalted. Nero melted like wax. So Psalm 112 gives us, in a sense, kind of a a spiritual heart diagnosis. It gives us a diagnosis of our heart. And it shows us that the hearts of the upright are generous, they're just and wise, steadfast, all because we fear in the Lord and we delight in his commandments. On our own, outside of Christ, we're selfish, we're foolish, we're full of fear. But in Christ, by the rebirth of the Holy Spirit, we have hearts that are generous, we have hearts that are wise. We have hearts that don't fear bad news because we trust in the Lord. This is the word of the gospel to us, that we've been washed, we've been justified, we've been sanctified in Christ by the Spirit. So we are those who look like the righteous man described in Psalm 112. We're generous on the one hand, but we're also steadfast, immovable. We can say with Peter that we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And even after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We know this, just as Peter knew this. And we can say with Paul, who, yes, died at the hands of the Romans, but who was crowned with righteousness, whose horn was exalted in honor. We can say with Paul, the life that I now live, I live in flat, sorry, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me.